For us, the only way to actually grow beyond the ceiling of custom furniture is to develop these efficiencies to where we can make 300 tables in a year. I talk with John and Dina Ketchum, co-owners of New Collar Goods, right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with John and Dina Ketchum, co-owners of the Salem, New York-based furniture company, New Collar Goods. New Collar Goods was officially started in 2015, but the roots of John and Dina's company had been brewing for a long time before that. With their strong sense of design, they knew the kind of furniture they wanted to make, but they also knew that to succeed in this industry, they needed to understand their customers and find the right balance between the furniture they wanted to make and the furniture their clients were asking for. That balance, along with a lot more, is what has made their company successful for all these years. Follow along as we talk about the importance of community, learning when to take a break, the difference between custom and collection furniture, and much more. So let's jump right in and hear about John and Dina's story in their own words. So I think for both of us, it was kind of a necessity thing. So we moved uh, across the country to Colorado in 2010 and kind of sold all our belongings before we made that move. And I was working in graphic design and wanted to just start making our own uh, hard goods or furniture for our apartment. So I reached out and found a local like kind of community maker space and got involved with that and started to make small pieces just for our apartment and for ourselves, just using kind of 2D shapes designed in Illustrator. So just graphic design kind of standard uh, software. And then that grew a bit and Dina was looking for a change and we kind of just said, why don't we try this for a while? Why don't we make an initial line of furniture together and see if we can generate some sales? So Yeah, so John was um, simultaneously taking some private, he was doing kind of like contract graphic design jobs. And at the time in Denver, there was a ton of breweries starting up and so kind of on unlimited budget. So John was like, he reached out to a list of, he found a lot of, um, brewers that just registered 
um, their business and like reached out to each one of them and was like, Hey, do you need branding and whatever? So he would do their branding packages and get to know them. And then they were like, Oh, well, we're building out a tap room. We need furniture. Oh, you know how to weld. Cause John would take, you know, welding classes. They have all these different classes at this makerspace. And so John just kept saying yes. And then from there, it kind of like, you know, turned into something that felt like it could be a viable business. And my background, um, I went to school for fine arts and, um, I was kind of working in the, you know, in the home furnishing sort of space and was ready to move into something different. And um, so we we built out a line and our intention from the start was to to sell that line. And of course, like most makers, we moved towards the custom route because that's sort of where our consumers were taking us. And that has sort of been where the space we've been in since since that point yeah Um, so then let's see from that phase i was still doing graphic design with a handful of clients and building things for them and then uh eventually kind of came to the conclusion that i was letting the graphic design parts of the job go a bit and because i liked the furniture side more when you do a branding project, you kind of, you know, spend a month or so uh, delving into a problem, which is how do you visually tell a story for this company with, you know, an icon and a word mark? There's something that's unique, but memorable and just that sums up what they feel is their business. And it was fun work and interesting, but I never felt like I had a tangible outcome. Felt like I was delivering just a PDF at the end of it. And it didn't have the same uh, weight to it, I guess, as, you know, building a table or a chair or something and delivering that. Yeah. Actual weight. So, yeah, I think we both jumped in kind of both feet and uh, built out our garage at the time in Denver, which is a very small space and kind of tooled up and just started taking on work as it came in. Yeah. We had like, everything was on casters. John had a welding table in the corner. So it was like welding day one day, like milling day one day. And it was like, so we would, it would be one thing each day and it was totally frustrating, really inefficient. Um, But it served us for a little while until we were able to secure something um, more commercial, but it, it was very tricky to find something in, in the area um, that was affordable and, and made sense for us, but luckily we did. And and we had that for three, four years, which yeah. was awesome. Yeah. But um, we were always sort of anxious about, well, what if the family that owns this building is ready to sell and what's next? And we were always keeping our eye on the commercial real estate market in Denver. And it just became this like sort of daunting next step of like, what do we do? Um, and we looked at like farm properties and like, you know, with some acreage thinking, oh, well, we can, you know, build out a big old wood would shop here and live there. And so our mind just started to sort of like go in different directions and open up to different possibilities of like, well, maybe we leave the city and we live on the outskirts and the plains or whatever. Um, and nothing really felt like the right thing. It felt like we were sort of like compromising our quality of life just so we could have more space for our workshop and felt like we kind of it just wasn't the right thing. But we took a trip back east to um, go to a friend's wedding back in 2019. And there's this building in the town next to the town that we grew up in. And um, John drove past it with his stepdad and was like, what's the deal with that building? Like, I remember when I was a kid, you used to drive by it all the time for my summer job. Like, 
what's the deal? It's been vacant in my in, for my entire adulthood. I was familiar with it too, being from the same area, of course. And um, but you know, John just kind of offhandedly said, "Well, if you can figure out who owns that building and put me in touch with them." Like we'll move back east, and and when John repeated that to me, my stomach kind of flipped because I was like, okay, here it is. Like I'm sure he's going to make that happen because he's the kind of guy that like gets a sight set on something and makes it happen. And so anyway, that that was 2019. Yeah. So he, here we are. So we yeah. And uh, I guess from the business perspective too, just kind of taking a step back. I mean, that was kind of our let's call it growth trajectory. But in between, I will say. I don't know, like any small business, I think you just you get it's such a roller coaster. I mean, you're we we were lucky enough to find consistent work and kind of finally find peace with that. I think when you first start, you panic a little bit and you take anything and you want to work with anybody. Um, eventually, you start kind of dialing in what kind of stuff you want to take and also working within your own designs. When people start their own furniture company, there's there's sometimes a moment a a moment of clarity and you could be toying with the idea for a while but there's that moment where you make up your mind and before you don't have a furniture company and after all you can think of is having your own company and if it's a one person company if it's a one person founder then that is something that happens in their head. But for both of you, since you are doing this together, there must have been a moment that you both had to share. So you were both together and on it. Can you talk about about that moment or that time and take us back to what that was actually like? Yeah, I can talk about that moment. So I would say it's actually when we formed our business uh in 2015 i had been building furniture previously as well as the graphic design thing um but just kind of here and there on the side and then it was when dina decided to leave her previous job and join me full time that we kind of took it pretty seriously so that's when we formed the company formed the name uh built items at the time that were to our aesthetic only not based on clients needs or whims we thought Let's just make things that we want in our home. And that that was kind of the definitive moment, I think, that we both sat down and said, this is this is what we want to do. And this is the start of it. It was such like a creatively fulfilling and exciting time, too, because I think for John being in the graphic design space and building all these brand packages for other companies, he just had this like burning desire to sort of have his own. Like, what would I do if I created my own logo? And what would that website look like? And what would, you know, what would be the tone of, you know, all all the details that surround the, you know, the design aspect of a business. And and for us, we, you know, sit down and have these creative brainstorming sessions and you know, design piece after piece and build it and photograph it. And just creatively, it was so fulfilling and very exciting. And then the, I remember the day we launched the website, it was just like, it was just, it was the best. And and like, you know, since then, we've sort of trailed away from that route because you get kind of taken on other journeys based on where your customers lead you, which is awesome. And it's a wonderful growth opportunity. But um, I think where we found ourselves now is like, we want to get back to that a little bit. Like we want to design pieces, put together pieces that are in our head, put them out on the website and sort of like kind of come back to this, like 
um, central little package of like, this is who we are and what we do and like have some continuity, a little more continuity. And yeah, and it was really funny too that moment specifically. I think we both remember it and it seems so, I think from the outside, it could seem very strange to hear, but we, we published the website and we were working on it for a long time and did all the photography and stuff. And at the time it was just, we really liked it for ourselves and ourselves only, and nobody had seen it. We didn't do any testing or anything. And just launched the website and like both of us, like I had like an adrenaline dump. I was like, I feel like sick to my stomach <laughs> just because it was like so much time and effort. And it was something we actually so physically cared about. Yeah. yeah. The first time that you are kind of on display saying, no, this, these are the things that we care about. I guess not unlike any other like artist showing up sure. portfolio to someone and leaving it open for a judgment kind of thing. So I think that was kind of the definitive moment. I want to get into your furniture and your furniture business and how you grew your company. That's what we are here to talk about. But I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you a little bit more about what you thought about when you were starting your company, because you were coming from a graphic design background where you were basically helping people start their own companies. And so that was your job. And then when you did it for yourself, you knew the steps that were needed to be taken to bring an idea into reality. What were some of the things that you were thinking about when you were thinking about your brand, when you were figuring out what your website was going to look like, what your overall aesthetic was going to look like, the logo and the name and the design and, and that part of it? So it was kind of interesting when I had clients, especially in the brewery space, I kind of felt like at the time everything was, it wasn't necessarily loud, but everybody was trying to stand out from the next person. And I think what we wanted to communicate with our furniture was that it was like sophisticated and modern and simple. And I think for that, we didn't necessarily need a big, bold, overstated logo and word mark. Well, I'll go back to the name first. So New Collar Goods is essentially where we grew up in a very heavily blue collar area. And there are a ton of people within our family sphere and just community sphere that they can do most things. They're super capable. We both find value in that. They're very tactile and great with their hands. And I said, how can we take like a graphic design approach or a new computer aided approach to this blue collar mantra and this way of doing things. So it's kind of like an, I don't know, it's a nod to it, the new era or a newer version of blue collar trade. So it's new collar goods. It's like computer aided design. And yeah, so kind of f fusing the, the two together, I guess. Right. Yeah. And then I guess just purely for talking just nuts and bolts of the logo, there are a few things that I kind of noticed. So a lot of times our font choice and our word mark is a serif font. And I've just, in research, you start to notice that the higher end brands and brands that charge more, they're using serif fonts. It's something that that public is more familiar with. So that was a choice. And then for our mark and our word mark, it's not, it almost looks like two ends, but it's, uh, I always was an advocate for a simple mark that has depth and then also can be screen printed, embroidered, printed in any capacity easily and is definable. 
So for this, this is kind of, it, it's a construction of an N, but it's meant to be kind of the N overlapping itself. So it's just showing what could be interesting joinery or construction, but it's also a simple uniform mark that's our own. So really, you don't have to hit the nail on the head with a mark was always my thinking. I think you just need to have something that becomes what your business represents. It's kind of, you know, chicken or egg. You could argue both sides for a logo. Let's move into the actual physical furniture, the building of the furniture and the designing of the furniture. You aren't the first company to start out thinking we're going to have a collection of furniture and we're just going to sell that collection of furniture. And it's a it's a great idea. And when it works, it works. And when it gets picked up, it gets picked up and it's amazing. But there's there's usually some legwork that needs to be put in before that line of furniture gets picked up. And while that's happening, you still need to make money. So you think, okay, I can start doing some custom stuff as well. How have you been balancing the idea of your own collection, your own aesthetic and pushing that forward, but also customizing it and doing other work that helps to pay the bills? It's been a really challenging juggle. We recognize that this is a really common thing that furniture makers run into because you realize that with repeatability in the furniture space, that's when you make your money. When you're doing one-offs, you can't possibly quote things as accurately as they need to be to get your margins where they need to be. So a lot of times it's you know, making a few pieces in a similar vein and then saying, hey, wait, we, we've got to pivot here because we're, we're not making the right kind of money for any given piece. So the first phase for us was sort of like, say yes to anything and everything. Like we'll come out with a line, just proof of concept. Yes, we can make furniture. And then whatever work comes our way, we're just saying yes, because we don't have any other jobs. This is what we want to do. It was a wonderful way to learn so many different techniques and materials to work with. And it was a really good education that in some ways we were getting paid for, which is great. But then from there, we were like, okay, well, now we can sort of like stand firm a little bit. Now we've got a little more credibility. We can sort of steer people in the direction that we want to go with, go in aesthetically. So then the hope was, okay, well, from here on out, we're making a piece that we're excited about design-wise, we're going to design it in the computer in a way that we can change the parameters digitally um, so that in hopes of being able to make it a second, a third, a fourth time, we just have to go back into that computer file, make some minor adjustments, and then you know print out our plans and, and go to work. Um, and so that's kind of been our methodology to this phase. And, and now we have this really wonderful portfolio of pieces that we would absolutely love to make multiple times. And so now we're just kind of trying to present that to more interior designers and architecture firms. And yes, we can do variability with within that, but it just sort of narrows the scope a little bit. And, you know, we have these joinery, joinery techniques. We have, you know, if you need a, if you need a more Parson style table, we'll point you in this direction. And yes, we can make these minor adjustments, but all in all, it just, like we have more of a foundation to build off of. It feels a little bit more deliberate and our quoting is a lot better. And so I don't know. I just think you just kind of have to try to get closer to that end goal. And, you know, maybe, maybe the real end goal would be to have one or two pieces that we 
push out there and we come up with a really strategic marketing plan and we can make those two pieces on repeat while also entertaining some really fun custom side as, you know, bread and butter as a security blanket, so to speak. But it's, it's hard to get right because there is this sort of like scarcity mentality that you kind of find yourself in, in that space when you're making furniture, especially when you're economic hardships and whatever. And, and then, you know, us moving to a more remote area, there's dynamics within that. And so I feel like we're never trying to like plan our feet solidly in one place and just be inflexible, but we are trying to sort of move in the direction that makes us a little happier and we're making pieces we're excited about. And meanwhile, like able to build a sustainable business. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of add to that too, I think, uh, yeah, the aesthetics piece always drives us first. We're always, you know, we'll even just locally go to uh, vintage or antique stores and just see mechanisms that are interesting or a hinge the way that they, you know, fold out a certain drawer or something. And just for fodder, just for like, you know, conceptual, like how does this work in a modern context and with a modern utilitarian form. I mean, we're we're definitely a blend between like utilitarian and aesthetic. And um, yeah, I just think that we're always through doing custom work, we're trying to slowly but surely narrow what would be a much better line to eventually offer and work from. It's a bold thing to do to have your own specific type of furniture that you're designing and putting out there. Yes, a lot of people do it. And I think it's bold for for everybody doing it because you're taking something and saying, this is the way I think it should be and putting it out there and hoping that other people agree with you and agree with you not only on the visual merits of the work, but also agree with you with their money and paying and buying it. It's a it's a bold thing to put out there. You have a pretty strong sense of where you're taking this, that you're sticking with the style, you're sticking with your idea, you're not doing the anything that comes in, custom work, you're staying with this foundation, this style of furniture. When you're going out there and looking for designers or stores or even customers, how are you really pinpointing the type of customers, the type of designers, the type of stores that you want to advertise to? Because you know that if you have your own style, that style isn't for everybody. There's a specific customer who's looking for that. Yeah, I think two parts to that. One is... I think a huge advantage for us in moving and living somewhere that's culturally different, I guess, and just, you know, physically so far removed from where we're from is you realize that there are so many different people that like so many different things. So there's a probably a good chance if you're really heart set on the thing that you find aesthetically pleasing, that there's going to be enough of a public to support you if you can show it the right way. And that maybe that's just a trust and like a gut fall thing on our behalf. But that's something that we kind of continually lean on because I think we are not uh, what you would consider like a traditional marketing or advertising company. We don't do any of the traditional testing. 
we make things that make us happy and then could be a terrible idea, but for us, it seems to work. And then we put that out there and see how it's received. And part of that is not getting your feelings hurt when it's not received at all and figuring out the things that you were not that excited about that were people had a, you know, kind of fell in love with or had something that called to them, find out what those elements are and expound that a bit more in our vein. I I think also like, you know, within the makerspace, within the, you know, furniture realm, there's so many different kinds. It's just like art. Like there's so many different kinds of styles and approaches to making furniture. And I think, you know, when we were in Denver, we had a really great community of of makers that we kind of leaned on each other and, you know, just share, learn knowledge and experience through this whole thing, I guess. And so um, the cool thing is that we can look at one another and recognize, yeah, there's space for you in the market. There's space for me in the market. And I don't have to compromise like the direction I want to go in because it's niche. And um, and it's it's more fun for us. If we had to constantly make things that we weren't excited about, we would probably look somewhere else for a career. Um, and it just, it feels like really lucky that we're able to do that. Um, but then another piece to it is our designs tend to be pretty pared back. Like, yes, there's some you know, maybe unexpected little details with curves and cutouts and whatever. But like, we're always trying to think of the sustainability aspect of it where we don't want this to be trendy and, you know, really popular right now. And we don't want this to be like, you walk into a room and this is the first thing you see. We want it to support the whole space and be this like beautiful grounding element that is of heirloom quality that can stick around for a while. And that's, that's sort of what I think grounds us in that, you know, as we're going through designs and yeah. And, yeah. yeah like if we're going to plant a flag in the sand of what we do and why we do it, it is to make furniture that I, I do want to see stick around and can look great in a modern house and a shaker house and a colonial house with mixed styles. Like we just want quality items made by us that are interesting in a different way, I guess. Running a furniture company from the the back end, from the business side is difficult. It's hard. It's it's stressful. It's time consuming. And that's not even getting into the actual building of the furniture, the physical side of the furniture business. And on top of that, you have both metal and wood you have two materials that you're building into your furniture what does the actual building part look like you get an order and you have to then build it i know you said in the beginning that you were right at the beginning you were doing one metal day one wood day you were scheduling it out that way and that wasn't really working for you how has your your process of physical building of the furniture grown over the years and what does it look like today? Sure. Process is pretty vastly different today. We've quickly jumping into this. We moved back to New York last year, almost a year ago, into a much larger space. We've been building that out and um, kind of finding flow in that space, which is really nice. In terms of uh, workflow in general and how we're juggling things, so we'll get, say we get an order for one of our, what we'll call line item, like a helm dining table. I've built this out 
uh, parametrically using 3D modeling, which means uh, I have built formulas into it so that if you want a table that is 32 inches tall, which is abnormal, and you want something that's 40 inches wide and 84 inches long, I can punch those numbers in. Everything adapts, including all of my joinery, uh, all of my fit and finishes, like all of that kind of stuff. So I've taken the time in certain specific items that we know we kind of want to positively market into, which we have not yet, to really build those out and build systems around them. So that, I think, is the next phase and the next life of this business is how do we run it like a Lego factory? Um but again, keeping the bones, you know, you get excited on the front end about the design and the aesthetics and the purpose of the piece. Phase two is sell a few and simultaneously, if it starts to look good, build out the entire system for making this um, a lot simpler and easier, meaning, you know, designing through CAD and figuring out those steps so somebody can grab the clipboard and make the thing or make two of the thing. And then from the customer experience, they're getting this rendering that proportionately is accurate and they can look at it. And then there's no surprises at the end. And then they have an order for a set of dining chairs that they know they want to get. And, you know, they give us the dimensions. They can be plugged into that rendering and they can really see like, oh, okay, well, that arm is going to bump in. So we need to adjust this, you know, this, 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 this apron or whatever the case may be. So it really helps the customer know exactly what they're going to get come delivery day. Right. And then just from a process perspective from our, for our business, it's, it's maybe different than others, but we get all of our wood rough um, kiln dried locally. It's comes in packs. We pick through it. Um, we select the best boards. We have large mill days where we'll just, you know, joint plane surface, everything, make it flat and true. We'll do our glue ups on a big glue up panel address all of the smaller components, your legs and your aprons and all of that stuff. And then essentially wide belt sand, the larger components, load them onto, we have a large CNC machine and that then runs the programs that are created from those CAD models with all the joinery that I talked about. So it's semi-efficient. We're trying to make it more efficient and trying to also limit our finishes. Um, I think all of these things help you grow a business especially in a in a space that you don't want to like forever expand because furniture is super equipment intensive and space intensive so i think for us the only way to actually grow beyond the ceiling of custom furniture is to develop these efficiencies to where we can make 300 tables in a year i want to talk about the money side of the business and since you do have a collection of furniture and all of those pieces are priced out to begin with, you have starting out prices. So clients know kind of what they're getting. So you don't need to really have that, that pricing conversation with a client. But what I do want to get into is the deposit and how you're getting money. You have your deposit set up as Anything over $2,000, you're taking 50%. And anything under $2,000, it's all up front, paid for in full before the process starts. Where did those numbers come from? I know they weren't just pulled out of the air and they are something that you decided. Where did that come from and why are you structuring your payments in that way? 
Yeah, I think it's just a temperature taking thing. So I think uh, we've kind of realized that, I don't know, people are comfortable under $2,000 paying for the piece up front. We're fully confident in the piece if they wanted to pay the full you know, price of our dining table up front. But for some people, it's just what they're comfortable with. And it's kind of a, I'll call it a social contract where it's, you know, I've given you this, now I expect work. Now I'd like to see the final um, piece come through. So I th- those are numbers that we did in understanding how we've sold things and what people are comfortable paying. Those are the numbers that made sense to us. And really it just, in either sense, they keep you liquid and they keep you going. So I think you definitely need deposits. I think anything under 50%, um, we would never ask for. It just doesn't make sense, um, especially in a custom piece. There's so much extra work that I'm going to say on every project we try and we have a calculator for pricing and we try and, you know, adjust that calculator for that overage of time on the computer or that time figuring out a certain component of the table. But usually you're, you're above and beyond that. And we also want the customer to be serious about their inquiry. We don't want to, because we're always giving, we don't charge um, for drawings, which a lot of maker or many makers do. Um, And that takes a lot of time, especially if it's a completely custom piece. And so, you know, we're putting in sometimes four or five hours before, yeah, before the job is even, you know, secured. And so we feel like it's fair enough to request cost and materials and and then and then some so yeah. um, it, it had no one's really given us any pushback and I mean I feel like at that point they know what the price is and they're agreeing to the price and so it just it just kind of it just works and everyone's committed on the project at that point so and another little uh, kind of jumping back I guess into you talked about the starting price model on our website so we we don't have just a quick way to purchase a table on our website. It's something we will likely be changing. Um, and that's for two reasons. Again, we want to kind of bring our offerings down a bit and uh, funnel them. And then the other reason is is that this calculator that I talked about, you know, w- when it's a custom job, it's a jumping off point. So if somebody comes to us and they say, I want this table, but I want it to be X, X large, then that point again, that price point is just to inform them like, hey, this is generally where the budget of our tables is going to land um, or the price point. And then I can go through this calculator and estimate tooling costs and time drawing the piece, time in the shop and our shop rate and then, you know, overage and then our margin on top of that. So I think it takes the emotion also out of pricing, which is something we battled with initially in business. And before the inquiries officially submitted from the customer, they have a foundational idea of what a table from us will cost, which it is it is super uncomfortable to like talk to someone who has no idea about our price, which we have had people approach us who haven't found our website. They see us on Instagram or whatever, and then we have to kind of say, oh, this is the price and this is the lead time or whatever. And it's hard not to feel like it's a personal conversation of like, well, this is how much we think we deserve for this piece. And, you know, this is how busy we are. So you'll get a, you know, a month from now or whatever the case may be. And like that, that's kind of, that's uncomfortable. This sort of makes it a little bit easier, I guess. Yeah. We've been talking about 
building furniture and running a furniture business and and all of that because that's the name of this show that's what this show is all about but there's kind of an elephant in the room this whole time because yes building furniture is hard but you're also building a building you're renovating a giant building for a lot of different reasons let's talk about that building you decided to purchase it you went ahead and made that commitment what are your plans for that building where are you taking it and and what does the future look like for the company having purchased an actual physical space that you can design your company's future in yeah um two things that feels it it was definitely an opportunity that came up that we could not have said no to it's one of those things that will never come across again given the state of the building um kind of it's it's cornerstone area of this town and also the town itself it was originally a uh, garment factory from 1899 um there are two sections to the building but the part that we are mostly renovating is from 1899 and uh it's worked through the years, the last century, as different garment factories, and then it was a ski company, and then it went up for back taxes. Yeah. And this one family in town held it because it was just such a prized pillar again. And we had inquired at the right time and told them realistically, like, hey, this is what we need to buy this for to try and make this what we needed to be and they were amicable to that which was huge the first objective was real well we realized okay the building is something that we can acquire we can secure more workshop space and then you know oh well we have to move across country what does that look like for our business and then every we kind of worked backwards from there so we sort of said yes to the building and then then our then our minds were just like going wild for months and months like thinking about the different options for using the space and um and then kind of like developed our ideas from that point on we made the decision we had talked to a lot of the clients that we were working with in denver and kind of broached this as well and just said hey we're going to be moving most of them said no problem we'll still like to work with you you can create and ship your items so um that was a huge relief as well just in the transitional phase um operating in different markets so we moved last summer, almost a year ago, and immediately had to completely, our tools were in storage at a family member's uh, barn, essentially. And we had to completely demo the first floor of this building. It um, was completely rotted out. It needed, the floor was completely rotted out, and it needed to be completely backfilled and have new concrete poured into it. And because it was always a garment factory, there was never a large commercial opening in the space to where you could actually feasibly move a pallet of goods in and out with a forklift. So the other first, the second order of business was, well, the first really, but is to break down a pedestrian door and a window and turn it into a garage door opening. So we were lucky enough to find some people locally who were capable of doing that. And that was a pretty scary endeavor on this beautiful old historic building, but we did that. And then after that, it's all about like demoing and well, we did the demo first, but all about backfilling the space and um, kind of sort of starting from the ground up and then yeah. 
And it was equal parts like terrifying and exhilarating because you get to actually, I think every woodworker, every business person, especially somebody that occupies a physical space always thinks about what that's going to be like if they had their own, if they could do it their own way, if they weren't, you know, being charged rent. And this was our chance to do that in a very special space. There's three floors in the main structure. The first floor is definitely all workshop space. The second floor, our hope is to keep it fully intact with the original hardwood floors, um, you know, paint, repaint the brick, all that, update the lighting fixtures, and just have it as an event space, a completely open as it was sort of space and um, and have people be able to rent it out, you know, for whatever purpose they need. Right. And then in the third floor, we're going to live in a portion of it. And then the goal is to have a handful of Airbnb rooms um, that people can a, engage with the building that are from the area. And then also long term uh, host students for classes and then also host teachers long term woodworking, woodworking classes specifically. The interesting thing about this building and we keep referring to it it's it's very strange because we have been fully engrossed in our furniture business since we started it and even before that and this building is like a totally different creature where it's it's as important and it is a member of this community so it's we through you know realizing these ideas that we have for the building will it'll impact the community greatly um, and bring people in drive commerce. And that's a huge goal of ours. You are all in, both of you are all in on this business, on this building, on, on every part of what you're doing. And that can be life consuming. It really can be. And I'm sure you can agree that this is this furniture business and everything that comes along with it is all encompassing for your day. It's what you think about in the morning. It's what you think about during the day. And it's what you think about when you go to sleep and not only think about it, but it's what you're doing. You're physically doing it. How are you balancing work-life balance? You say in your mind, what work-life balance? Everything is work. There's no balance, but both of you have to juggle this you have to make time for yourselves as well as the business how are you going about that what do you both do to make sure that even though you are 100 200 300 a thousand percent into this business you're not burning yourselves out i think when we started our business um you know we had like zero life like we took we have we hadn't taken a vacation in like you know i don't know many yeah. several years and like most of our friends were also simultaneously starting businesses at the same time and it was so interesting because while you have this like support group of people you can lament to um you know and, and relate to one another and it was also you know we're all trying to find our way through that through that balance and then kind of just got to a breaking point where you you figure like none of it's going to change like you you're always going to need money it's always going to be something else to figure out like you kind of alluded to an, earlier you know there is the accounting there's the the planning the selling there's so many aspects to business ownership that you you're never going to feel fully in control and i think at some point you just have to surrender to that and you know since we've moved now we're creating 
new friendships. Like we need that social circle and that outlet. And, and so it's just been really hard to kind of like get everything we need to have a balanced life. And um, so there have been a lot of times where we just had, we've had to take, take time off and be at peace with that to prevent burnout because we have a, a huge responsibility ahead of us that we have to be able to work on for years to come. So it's just kind of coming to the realization that so much of it is out of our control and you just kind of have to pick and choose when you're going to go full speed ahead and then when you're going to stop and quiet and like do the things that fill you up so you can keep moving forward. That's, I don't know if that's super generic to say, but that's how it feels. Yeah. And then also I think, um, yeah, I think we've always struggled with work-life balance. And I think the when we have moved back um, to the area that we're from, subsequently we're surrounded by a lot of family and family friends that have retired and i think that at times you'll get sage wisdom from people that have run businesses before and again it's the maybe that that like total calculus of at the end of the day you're going to get there as long as you keep riding the horse kind of thing but you have to find other ways to just shut your brain off, whether that's exercise or travel or whatever the other thing is, like make that a priority because it's going to make you ultimately healthier at your business. So it's something we always talk about and always say we we kind of should ourselves like we should do this. We should go camping. We should run more. We should do whatever it is because those are truly the things that change your brain and change your mind. And to kind of try as best you can to sort of sever your identity with your business, like to have to be able to say that you are more than that thing, because I think that's super easy to do when you're a business owner, because you put your heart and soul into it. You put all of your free time into it and it can get away. Yeah. You know, it can totally get away from you. It's yeah. a, it is a weird thing. You have to like somehow say i love this thing it motivates me i want to keep moving forward but i have to be able to shut the door on it from time to time um and that's actually healthier for the thing ultimately um so it's something we're continually working on but i do think it's if if i had any advice for somebody that was starting out it is to just like pace is okay it's so it's it's going to be slow it's going to take a long time to acquire tools it's going to take a long time you're going to screw a lot of stuff up too and that's okay you're going to get good at fixing it and then also when things just burn your brain and you can't sleep or you wake up early like do something else for a day or two just stop what you're actively doing and try to break yourself from it because it's it can it can be all-consuming you're getting sage advice from your family, your retired family. You have a group of friends who are, are also entrepreneurs and are also starting their own businesses. And you have a large network of people that you've talked to over the years from having this business since 2015 and running your own businesses even before that. You have a lot of people to talk to and a lot of places to get advice from. You were going into a little bit of advice for people starting their business, and I wanna I wanna keep going on that for people who who are starting their own furniture business. They think this is for me. I want to have my own furniture company, and they they want to pursue that advice for people like that, but also advice for people who like you have been running 
a company for a long time, have been heavily involved in this, heavily invested in their own business, but but maybe don't feel like they're getting that proper return on what they're putting in. So for both of those people, for anyone, what's some advice that you could share from both of your experiences in running your own business? Advice for me is like, I, I we would definitely not be where we are in making those these current choices if we didn't have just blind ambition at the start. So I think if you have like a burning desire to make a thing or figure something out, chase it and do it. And if that thing does not go to plan, that's okay. Like usually the second or third time, if we're developing products for ourselves, it takes several renditions until we're all happy with it and you work everything out. And that's a lot of handwork. So you just have to be okay with sometimes the the longer duration to completion, which I think takes time. Um, I think that's one thing. I th- I kind of alluded to this before, but I think I think community is like the number one thing if you're starting or if you're already there um, with a business because you know if, if it doesn't matter if you're new to woodworking or you're a more established woodworker, you will n- never master every aspect of it. There will always be questions. I can't tell you how many times we've reached out to friends saying, "Hey, like we're really struggling with this finish, or, or we're getting this kind of like weird." mark from our sander like what's how do whatever it is and and you you need someone to bounce all those questions off of to try different techniques because not one of us has this same you know workflow um as the next so and then also just you know during those extremely stressful times just to have a grounding force and to feel validated of like yeah like this is hard i feel it too and 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 just just to have someone to relate to and i just think it, it like just helps you move forward. Yeah, it's it's weird to consider. I mean, and it's weird to start. I think most people start with just as we did, just drive and you're like our drive and our passion and our aesthetic. It, it is rolling the dice, but I think that this could lead to a living for us in which and it's a living designed by us, right? It's it's something that we are comfortable doing. You're kind of building your own life. And I think that then you transition as you learn about your needs into saying, how do I make this more of a system so it can offer me a little bit more peace and solace? Because running with that same ambition and that raggedness as you started with can wear you down. So there's continual like gear shifts. And I think being aware of those and noticing when you're about to hit that burnout phase, it's just incredibly important and then reframing a bit in whatever way you can if that is a trip if it's travel if it's just putting that project aside for a second like not shaming yourself with your woodworking technique you know there's a lot of i don't know how to describe it but i feel like there's just so many different approaches to woodworking that you know some of us use cnc routers some of us use hand tools you know, and whatever it is that you're, however you're enjoying that process, whatever you can do to kind of like light that fire within yourself to get to the end goal, that's great. You know, like John really enjoys working with tools, like big tools and computer renderings and like that, that really is exciting for him and it kind of keeps him going. But if he had to sit there with hand tools all day long, he would lose it. 
like yeah so like i love hand tools but if i had to overly fuss with something day in and day out on fit i think i would go nuts and i much prefer i want to crack the code of a table and say this joint allows for glue strength it's six thousands (laughs) and i can nail that with my cnc that's what i'm moving forward with and move on so it's different for every person but like find yeah find the things that fill you up there is going to be a handful of things within the whole business realm that fill you up and use those when you need a prop because the other sides of things whether it's client communication or photography or anything else accounting that stuff if you're if you don't love it or you're not passionate about it can really wear you down so you got to balance like you know even in the time of your day we figure this out it's like if we start the day for me I got to start the hard work early. If I start with computer work, it kills my day. So it's just figuring out and continually kind of trying to problem solve how best you work because like we are also as static as we try to be as business owners. I feel like we are incredibly flexible beings that are ever changing day to day. I do want to thank you for giving us a little glimpse inside the inner workings of the way you run your business and continue to run your business. So I want to thank you for that. And I I want to thank you for sharing your story and your journey. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. Thank you for having us. It's been really nice. Yeah. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.